I love these moments where as the family of God gathers and we get to decide what kind of church that we're going to be. Are we going to be a church that lives in fear of man, that lives under man's opinions more than we live under God's opinions? Are we going to be a church that's sensitive to the voice of the Lord? A church where we can set aside our agenda just as our worship team has done this morning and to remind us that the voice of Jesus is greater than any other voice in our culture. Awaken Church, can we choose to be a church this morning that's not gonna live in fear? Amen. It's not gonna live in fear of man, fearful of what our peop people, our neighbors, our coworkers think of us. But can we choose to be people who lived bold for Jesus, unashamed? unashamed of the cross, unashamed of the gospel. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. It's the foundation of which we worship today is on the gospel of Jesus. If we want any fruit from this series on kingdom culture, we're going to be people who are going to be rooted in the gospel. I'm so glad you came to worship with us this morning. just want to say welcome. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Josiah. I'm one of the uh, pastors here at Awaken Church, and uh, you're welcome here. You're welcome here. And so if you are new, if you came in perhaps a little bit late, just want to uh, give a disclaimer. Uh, we are talking on uh, the subject of sex today. And so if you've got a little one with you, our kids' ministry is still open. We just highly recommend just checking them in today. It may not be the best message for them uh, to little, sit alongside with us. You know it is awake in one of our core values. We go deep and we get real. We don't shy away from honest conversations. And so uh, just a heads up on that. So as I said, uh, I'm so uh, glad that you are here to worship with us. For many of us, how many of us are just loving the weather right now? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was just driving through Old Settlers Park on the way here this morning, and like everything just looked a little bit brighter today. And I was like, man, I think the weather has been some, uh, some good news for us. I want to keep the good news going because I realized uh, this week that uh, I have been fed some lies in my childhood, Okay, I was told some lies, some myths, and we need to continue the good news and dispel some myths, okay, because I want you to be a person of freedom. Are you with me? Okay, so we're going to spend some time this morning just dispelling some myths that I have been told and maybe you were told as well. So I'm going to need your participation. If you've been told one of these myths growing up, I need you to raise your hand and let me know I'm not alone, okay? All right, so uh, the first myth that I was told as a child, or at least the one that I remember, is that chewing gum stays in your stomach for five to seven years. Anybody else? Yeah, yeah, some of you, the watermelon seeds. I'm still worried there's a watermelon growing in my belly somewhere, right? It's false. It's false. Gum is not digestible. It passes through the system a matter of two to four days, okay? Are you feeling good? Yeah, that was a lie that was spoken to you. Okay, let's get to some more myths. Uh, we only, ooh, this is a good one. We only use 10% of our brains. Anybody else? Has anyone heard that one like recently maybe? Yeah, yeah, I, I remember hearing this one recently. This is false. This is a motivational speaker's ploy, and it can actually be traced back to the early 1900s, and uh, it's used to encourage people to live up to their full potential. You're only using 10% of your brain, right? That's false. Our brains, they work really hard, okay? So give your brain some credit this morning. Here's another one, okay? I, I don't know if I want to tell this one because I still use this one against my kids now. Uh, sitting too close to the TV will make you go blind. Anybody else? Yeah, 90s kids in front of those big box televisions. 
right? And your parents are, oh, man, I can, I can literally hear the voice of my parents right now in my head. Some of y'all with me. All right, last one, last one. Oh, this is a weird one. I don't know. Shaved hair grows back thicker and darker. Anybody else? I'm seeing some ladies' hands go up. It's some, okay. If you haven't started shaving your legs, you can now because it's not true. It's not true. Now, that hair may have not have had the time to be bleached by the sun, which may make it a little bit lighter, but it does not grow back thicker and darker. I started shaving early. Kirk, you're with me, right? The big beard. I started shaving early. I wanted that beard early on. That was a myth. Okay. So we are uh, in this series on kingdom culture. We kicked it off last week, and Pastor, Brian, Pastor Ryan, not Pastor Brian, Pastor Ryan brought this amazing message on unity in the church. He shared about how disunity has kind of crept in, and it's really hindered the church in many ways. We're studying 1 Corinthians, and the Apostle Paul, he's writing this message back to the church, and he's addressing this topic of disunity and many different topics that are going on in the church. And the point is, is that the church is starting to look more like the culture around them than they are the kingdom of God. They're buying into some cultural lies, and they're living out those lies, and it's affecting unity in the church. Now, I think if the church of Corinth had a slogan, Pastor Ryan mentioned last week, that they were kind of similar to, like, California, right? Like, it was an important, influential um, city, and there was, you know, port, a port city. You know, there's a lot of travel through it and all that. I think if, the, if Corinth had a slogan, it would be something like, keep Corinth weird, okay? Like, there's a similarity between Corinth and Austin, Okay? Keep Corinth weird, okay? It's, it's a city filled with young professionals, entrepreneurs, hard workers, and they've kind of got this mentality of like, work hard, make your money, live your life. Pretty similar to Austin, right? Don't tell me what to do with my life. I'm working hard. I'm making my money. I kind of just want to do my own thing. <laughs> Keep Corinth weird. All right, so... One of these areas where they're starting to act, uh, act out and really seeking their own freedom, where they're listening to the voice of culture, is this area on sexuality. So we're going to be studying 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open those up right now. And uh, I think as we lean into this topic on sexuality this morning, I would wager to say I think few things define us actually more in 2023 than our sexuality. You see, culture, it puts all of its labels, all of these labels on us and how we act sexually in our culture, right? If uh, you're uh, maybe not having enough sex from as early as maybe middle school, I remember this when I was a kid, that you start hearing these lies you're made fun of, you're teased, you're called maybe a virgin or a prude or some derogatory words. Those are actually really good words, words that God honors, yet the world uses those labels as derogatory things to belittle people. Right? You're, you're not having enough sex. You're not cool enough. Think of the movie that came out about 20 years ago, right? The 40-year-old the virgin. Like that, didn't, that movie didn't come out and people didn't think that it was a, a, a historical documentary on the life of the Apostle Paul. They knew that it came out and it was going to be a comedy, right? It's teasing on this topic of prudency, which is an honorable biblical thing. Well, the flip side of the coin is that if, that if you're not having enough sex, well, then maybe you're having too much sex, right? And, and the world's created all of these messed up labels around this. Starting as early as maybe high school and college, if guys are sleeping around and being promiscuous with their bodies, then they're given this, this, this horrible title of stud, 
right? Like, oh, he's a ladies' man. He's getting all the ladies. When he's literally sinning against God and offending God in the way that he's living. And then it's also unfair that the other side of that is women, if they behave the same way, that they're given another word with starts with S. I'm not going to say it, but, but they're also labeled by that. And what these labels do is they provoke shame in our life. We just finished a four-week series on the topic of silencing shame. And man, the world, it wants to shame us. It wants to belittle us. It wants to put these labels on us to make us feel guilty and dirty where Jesus came to liberate us and set us free and to wash us clean. Amen? Well, there's a third title that's existing and emerging in our culture in this day and age. That if you hold to a biblical definition of sex and sexuality, then what are you called? Right? A right-winger, a bigot, all these other things, right? And the world's weaponizing these words and trying to create a rift. And so we're getting back to the Bible this morning, and we're getting back to learning what does the Bible say about sexuality? How do we not be influenced by the world on this topic? How do we be influenced by the Bible, and how do we live out kingdom culture? I want you, as we just talk about this topic, just to be thinking about this question in the back of your mind throughout this message. When it comes to our sexuality, are we influencing culture in the way that we live? Or is our sexuality being influenced by our culture? Are you with me? All right, let's get to the word of God here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. What a promise. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never, never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one flesh with her? But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside his body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, who you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Amen. Oh, the Apostle Paul holds no punches, right? He gets right to it in this passage. Now, you may have noticed from last week to this week, we uh, started in 1 Corinthians 1 on this topic of disunity. 
And then today we're picking up 1 Corinthians in chapter 6. It's not to say that there's good things in the other chapters, but this topic of disunity is repeated and highlighted in a couple different areas from chapter 1 until chapter 6. And actually the beginning part of chapter 6 of what we kind of skipped over this morning, there's an important link from verse 8 to verse 9. And I want to draw our attention to that really quick. Because in verse 8, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, But you yourselves are wrong, pay attention to that word wrong, and defraud even your own brothers. And then in verse 9, where we're at this morning, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So what the Apostle Paul is saying is this word wrong and unrighteous, they actually have the same root. And so Paul is saying this disunity that's being practiced in the church, you're suing one another, that's what's happening in the beginning of chapter 6, you're defrauding one another, it's all of these terrible things. Basically, everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, and the Apostle Paul is saying that's not okay, it's wrong. And that wrongness is, is it's leading to unrighteousness, and unrighteousness, it leads to separation from God. He's pointing out that the sin that they're practicing in disunity has eternal consequences. That should perk our ears up. It should cause us to really listen to what he's about to tell us. And this issue of sex is that if we're influenced by culture, the belief comes that we're actually going to be the ones who get to define sex, that we're the ones who get to define sex. And just like we talked about at the beginning of this message, like there's some myths that we were told as a children, there's myths that we've been told about sex from our culture. And that first myth is that sex is defined by me. We're not the ones who gets to define sex. God is the one who gets to define sex. See, every other culture that has existed, they've always attempted to redefine this word, to redefine how we think about sexuality. It happened even in the Old Testament, actually throughout the Old Testament in various books. And even Jesus himself had to address this myth that we do not get to define sex. I want to turn our attention really quick to Matthew chapter 19. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to kind of read it and summarize it for us. I'm going to pick it up in verse 3. So this is Matthew chapter 19. It reads this. It says, And the Pharisees came up to him, they came up to Jesus, and they tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two flesh, but one flesh." What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The Pharisees responded. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So what's happening in this passage is that the Pharisees, the people who are well-rooted in Levitical law, they're coming to Jesus with this question. And Jesus' answer to them actually reveals what's behind their heart, what's the heart behind the question. They're not really actually curious about divorce. What they're curious is they're looking for a way to expand the boundaries of marriage. You see, what the Bible tells us is they've practiced the hardness of heart through generations. They've continued to disobey God, and Moses had to make an exception for them. But divorce, it wasn't even the way that God intended for things to go. But are you with me? They keep continuing to try to expand the boundaries of how sex is defined. And Jesus, he points them back to the beginning. He points them back to the beginning. 
He says, you're trying to expand the boundaries for your own gain, for your own satisfaction, but that's not how it's meant to be. And he points them back to the original covenant that was made and established between God and man and woman. It's a pretty good argument. He draws it back to say God created sex and he is the one who gets to define how it's used. I couldn't help but thinking of, of, uh, of Steve Jobs. He, in, he in, invented this amazing piece of technology, right? The iPhone. How many people are iPhone users in the room? That's it? Four of you? Okay. A lot more than that, I know. Imagine this amazing piece of technology that Steve Jobs came out with. Uh, it, it exists to, to enhance our worlds, right? And all we ever use it for is to be a cup holder. How do you think Steve Jobs would feel about that? Right? His whole life work, right? The, 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 the best invention he's ever made, and then all we ever use it as is a cup holder. Like Steve Jobs, I imagine, would be rolling in his grave. God created sex. God created sex to be a unifying thing, to be a good thing, yet we misuse it. Sex does not get to be defined by me. It gets to be defined by God. Amen? The second myth that I want to dispel this morning is that sex is all about me. See, this disunity in the church is actually exposing this recipe to sin. It's actually exposing this recipe to sin. And that sin, it always leads separation from God. Doesn't really matter what the specific sin is, right? Sexual morality, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, theft, greed, drunkenness, slander, nor swindling. Paul lists out all of these hosts of sinful areas that people have fallen into trap to and where their lives are starting to look by the culture. The point is, is no sin is greater than the other. He's not nitpicking different sins in this passage. But what he's pointing to is that this root of sin is that it's all about me. And the way that we interpret that here in this world in 2023 is that sex is all about me. It's all about you. It's all about the individual. The root of this sin is selfishness, which then eventually leads to pride, which then leads to idolatry, which then leads to judgment. Do we get the graveness of this conversation? It's a serious conversation. You see, the root of sin, it produces death. And we apply this recipe of sin to the topic of sex, then sex becomes for my purpose and for my pleasure according to my plan. We know that when it's put into this sort of recipe, then sex becomes a devastating thing. If you've paid attention to the news recently, you would have known that there's a... Uh, there was a, a pretty catastrophic earthquake that hit North Africa. And, uh, and then consequently in, uh, in Libya, in the country Libya, just a few days after that, there was uh, some major flooding that occurred. A, a dam broke and, uh, and opened the floodgates, right? And then I was thinking and I was looking at pictures of this, if you can see them behind me. So this was taken a few days before the earthquake and this was taken a few days after. And you see, God created sex he defined how it was meant to be used, but because we've been selfish about it, we've made it about us. And sex was meant to be like a river inside the banks, flowing in a safe way. But the problem is, is that society expanded it outside of its banks. Culture has expanded it outside of its banks, and what happens is that it's become a devastating thing. That it's no longer held in the confines of how it's meant to flow, but it's actually overflowed the banks and it started to affect 
every way that we do life together. I can't help but think of the, uh, the example of one of our church partners, Key to Free Ministry. They, uh, they specialize in anti-human trafficking. They have safe house for women coming out of um, this, this um, horrific issue in our culture. But I went to uh, one of their trainings a few weeks ago. It was a 301 training. It was about three hours long. And, uh, and we sat in this room, and we just heard all the ways of, that sex is being misused in our culture. I mean, prostitution, kidnapping, grooming, strip clubs. I mean, just, just all of the things that you can imagine. And it was, it was heart-wrenching. It was, hard, it was a hard class to sit through. And just realizing the way that sex has expanded the banks of the river that God created has brought just devastation all around us. The cultural approach to sex is to tell you that it's for your purpose, it's for your pleasure, and it's according to your plan. And that's just not the way that kingdom culture teaches us what sex is about. Sex is used only within the boundaries that God has set, ultimately because we should be people who are more concerned about God's glory than we are our own personal pleasure. So we've learned so far, sex isn't defined by me, it's defined by God. Sex isn't all about me. It's actually about serving others in the confines of marriage. Any, any married couple that has a healthy marriage will tell you that sex isn't something that you demand from your spouse. It's something that you actually use to serve your spouse. It's something that you live out generously to your spouse in marriage. And when it's practiced like that, it is a good thing. It brings life, not only physically, but it brings encouragement. It brings nourishment. It brings comfort. All these different byproducts of good things that God wants to bless us with through the appropriate use of it. <clears throat> the third myth that we've been told in our culture is that I can do whatever I want with my body. Look at verses 12 and 13 with me. It reads this, it says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So you notice in probably your Bible that uh, these phrases, all things are lawful for me, they're in quotations, right? All things are lawful, food is meant for the stomach. So what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's actually using cultural arguments, the culture is trying to define sex and how it's used, and Paul is using these cultural arguments to actually defend a biblical interpretation of sex, right? So he's saying, he's not, he's not promoting personal autonomy in all things. He's saying, perhaps you're right. Let's just suppose for one minute, perhaps you're right, that all things are lawful for you, that you have the freedom to do whatever you want, to behave however you desire to act. Is it going to be beneficial for you? No. It's not going to be beneficial for you. It's not going to be helpful to you, right? We live under these similar cultural mantras in our, in our own world, right? Live your life. Live and let live. Do what makes you happy, your body, your choice. These are all lies that the culture tells us. It's not true. It's anti-biblical. Paul's saying those things aren't going to be helpful for you. If you continue to view sex and treat it in such a way Man, it's going to be devastating, and there's going to be serious consequences for it. And I think the reality of it is, and the danger is, is that when we buy into this mentality that I can do whatever I want, that there's no consequences, let me live my life, 
what we're communicating is that we're more concerned about our individual rights than the righteousness of God. That our individual rights actually become God. And it's a form of idolatry. Do we get that? It's a serious consequence when we practice idolatry. It will lead to separation from God. And Paul responds to this and says, I won't be ruled or dominated by anything. He says these things aren't meant to control us. They're meant to bless us. But when they become a ruling thing in our lives, they become devastating. It becomes devastating. And what happens in our culture is that we become ruled by the appetites of our flesh. Couldn't help but think, uh, I, my mother-in-law is in town. And uh, she came down from Ohio and uh, love my mother-in-law. She's incredible. She blesses our family in so many different ways. I'm sorry. I know that you're embarrassed right now that I'm calling you out. I'll try not to look at you, right? She's somewhere other. But she comes in, and every time she rolls into town, she does something that's inevitable. She sees the, our scarcity in our refrigerator, and she panics. And so what she does is she immediately goes to H-E-B. Right? They don't have H-E-B up in Ohio. She loves H-E-B. She goes to H-E-B, and she comes back, and she, like any good mother, she stalks our fridge. Right? The problem is, is that I think I've met the one person in the world who loves sugar more than I do, and it's my mother-in-law. So what happens is, is I came home from work the other day. I opened up our refrigerator, our freezer. There was ice cream bars. There was ice cream sandwiches. There was a box of macaroons. There was round rock donuts on the counter. I'm missing something. There was a key lime pie in the fridge. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. I mean, it was honestly my dream, right? And so that night, we put the kids down, and guess what I do? Ah, you got me. I lost control, right? I binged. It got so bad, my wife looked at me. She's like, babe, you need to stop. Like, you're going you're gonna to feel sick. And I was like, I already do. I don't care. I couldn't stop. But my flesh, it became a ruling thing. It became a ruling thing, and it was dictating how I was living my life in that moment. Now, praise God, I repented, right? I stopped eating the, the cake. I didn't feel good at all. And listen, if you've heard me preach before, if you've been in life group or discipleship with me, I'm very open and honest about my story and where I've been, because I spent many years of my life actually enslaved to sexual sin. It's something that I talk about very honestly and very open with. I try to be as transparent as possible, because I think that's what's necessary to this next generation is the talking about it. I spent, I don't know, 10, 15 years in addiction to pornography, right? And it wrecked my life. And one of the things that I always talk to guys when I'm counseling them, I always say, man, do you ever feel good? Do you ever feel good, like, like after that moment of gratification? Like, do you ever feel good the next day when you wake up? Like, you never feel good. Sin leaves you devastated. It leaves you feeling empty, just like binge eating on food. Like, I have the right to eat whatever food I want, but it's not all going to be good for me. And it's not all going to produce life. And when we become ruled by these things, man, our hearts are so fickle, they can't handle it. It brings devastation. Our brains become rewired to actually start to seek, right, pleasure from these areas that we're pursuing in unhealthy ways, and that, that forms into addiction. And addictions are very hard to break. Which brings me to my fourth, really, and final myth that I want to talk about this morning is this myth that if we listen to the voice of culture, how it teaches us how we view sex and how we practice sex, then I don't really need to change. I don't really need to change. This is how God made me, right? All these different excuses about not needing to change. So we're dealing with a significant issue in our society. 
And it's this, is that we've actually allowed culture to shape the narrative that says that your identity, your identity is primarily shaped by your sexual attraction. And sexual activity is not just a behavior that you practice. It's actually tied to the very essence of who you are. What this is is actually expressive individualism. Has anybody else heard this term? Yeah, this is an important term for us to actually understand in 2023 because it's really becoming a predominant way of thought. And what expressive individualism is, it's this thought that the individual is elevated to the highest authority and has become the arbitrator of one's own truth. We see it all around us in our culture. I'm the highest authority. Don't you dare tell me what to do. Awakened church, we've got to recognize this is a humanistic mentality. This is not a biblical mentality. This actually train of thought and expressive individualism is tied to the 19th century in Sigmund Freud. And anytime we start to hear a psychologist define things that we are very important in the Bible, we should be a little bit nervous, right? Should be a little bit nervous because he had it all wrong. You see, he was one that actually tied sexual identity to the essence of who we are. And it's just not true. And the sad thing is, is that many people in our culture, many people in our churches have bought into this humanistic mentality. They've bought into this mentality. And they've started to make compromises in various areas. And we've just got to call sin what it is. It's sin. It's wrong. We can't practice that and be a part of the kingdom culture. We can't practice these things and be a part of God's family. These things bring consequences and judgment and separation from God in our lives. Well, sadly enough, actually, this expressive individualism, I think, has actually influenced us more than we realize. Because if we go a step further, right, we may not be acting out in certain ways that the church in Corinthians was, but we're acting out in different areas. I think it actually defines the very, even sometimes, the way we do ministry. Think about this for a second. Maybe you're similar. You've grown up in a youth group that's focused almost exclusively on your self-esteem and how to get your emotional needs met. Anybody else grew up in a youth group that focused on emotional needs more than actually being rooted in teaching the gospel and how to live out the mission of God? I'm so grateful that we have a next-gen pastor. Man, that points our kids back to the gospel time and time again, that he doesn't let them get ruled by their feelings and their emotions, but he faithfully preaches and teaches the gospel. It's not about your self-esteem or your emotional needs. Those things are met in Christ, in Christ alone. Another example of how this mentality of expressive individualism has crept into the church is the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel perpetuates this thought that it's all about me. It's all about my needs and it's all about my comfort. Having enough money, having enough comfort, having enough rights. And it's wrong. It's anti-biblical but it's affected the church. Do you get it? Are you seeing it a little bit? What about churches and ministries that don't promote membership, don't promote discipline? Unfortunately, we have so many families even in the church that, that, that don't even practice discipline in their own home. And so they come to church. There's no way that nobody else is ever going to tell me how to live my life. It becomes an issue of teachability. Right? And we don't want to be disciplined. We don't want to be held accountable for the choices that we make. Now, of course, we'd say, man, that's, that's never been me. 
I would never do that. Well, a good question to ask yourself is when is the last time that you sat with another believer and just asked them, hey, what do you see in my life that's not pleasing to God? When's the last time you've done it? Hey, what do you see as an area of weakness in my life? I'm not going to get hurt. I'm not going to be offended. Tell me. I want to look more like Jesus. Where does my life not look like Jesus? When's the last time we've practiced that level of vulnerability with one another? This other area of the way that expressive individualism has affected the church, and Pastor Ryan hit on this last week, but it's in consumer-oriented megachurches, right? Nobody really knows me. I don't have a lot of deep relationships, and I can kind of just show up and exist in the shadow, right? And I'm here for the dopamine hit, a little dose of encouragement. Maybe I'm there so that my kids have some sort of like moral grounding, but that's it. And I'm good, and I kind of just seek sleep back into the, into the shadows. That's not the way that the church was designed to operate. We're meant to be a family, doing life with one another, encouraging one another, dealing with these hard topics of sin so that we can grow and so that we can live in true freedom. It's a heavy message this morning. It's a heavy message. And it was a heavy message to the church in Corinthians. Because Paul's writing to a place that's fallen into the spell of culture. They've fallen into the curse of culture. And what's happened is, is that people in the church have just accepted culture at face value and say, this is normal behavior. And what Paul calls out is that saying, you're, man, you're going to the temple and you're visiting prostitutes. If you didn't know that this time in, 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 the, in, in the city of Corinth, that it was actually the, the ruling God was the God of Aphrodite. And so at her temple, it was actually serviced by a thousand temple prostitutes. And so what's happening is that the people in the church are just saying, ah, this is just a normal cultural practice. We're just going to kind of go with it. And they're participating in this. And Paul's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You belong to Jesus. Your body's meant for the Lord. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit can move in power like we sang this morning. You're not, your body's not meant to look like, the, like for the world. It's not meant to be used for the world's purposes. It's meant to be used by God for his glory. It's a confronting passage. But we've got to be honest and we've got to be real with ourselves this morning. We may not be going out and visiting prostitutes, but we've got areas of weakness. We live in a fallen world and let me just say, all of us have been affected in one way or the other by sexual brokenness. Because sex on this side of heaven, it's imperfect. It's been corrupted. It's been defiled by sin. And all of us have been affected in one way or the other. And so I want to speak a word of hope and encouragement for you because there's a really important verse in today's passage. It's this. Look at verse 11 with me. Actually, I'm going to pick it up just right before there. He's giving the list of sins. He says, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then check out verse 11. He says, and such were some of you, right? Some of you did practice these things. Some of you were sexually immoral. Some of you have been adulterers. But here's the good news for us. And he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You have been washed. You have been redeemed. 
as I was writing this, I thought of this story of a woman who's caught in adultery. Anybody familiar with that story? And she's caught in adultery and she's brought before Jesus. And what happens is that the, the righteous, they're there and they're ready to condemn this woman to death. And I couldn't help but think of this stone. This stone probably similar in size, that could have inflicted serious damage on a body. And these people are lined up with stones, and they're ready to condemn. That's what the world has to offer, is stones. Stones of judgment. Stones of condemnation. And Jesus draws these people's attention back to this truth. He says, let you without sin, let you without sin cast the first stone. Listen, the church isn't here to accuse you. I'm not here to accuse you. I'm not here to cast a stone of judgment towards you. We study these topics because they're important to recognize. All of us have fallen into sin in one way or the other. All of our lives have been affected in one way or the other in sexual brokenness. And the church doesn't exist to condemn it exists to help you live the life of freedom that Jesus desires for you. Because these sins, they're not meant to rule your life. God is. And he wants to be the first love in your life. He wants to be the one to care for you, to meet every need that you have of your body. And it's in him that we find our joy and our satisfaction. Let's invite the worship team back up. I'm actually going to leave this right here, front and center. Just make sure I don't trip over it. These sort of messages, they, they hit us all a little bit different. And as we were praying with our intercessory prayer team this morning, I was drawn back to one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 51. It's a psalm where David, he's been caught in adultery. He's been caught in egregious sin. Sin that set him on a downward spiral. Right? That not only did he commit adultery, not only did he cheat, but then he tried to cover it up and he murdered and just all of these terrible things happened as a result of his sin. And Psalm 51 is this incredible passage. where he comes back to God with a repentant heart. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Jump down to verse 7. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. <clears throat> as we were reading this passage together as a prayer team, I just couldn't help but just call out the obvious, the elephant in the room, that I was this man. 
I was this man who offended the Lord or the Lord's judgment in my life would have been justified by my sin, by my actions. But here's the liberating truth that Jesus washed me clean. And no matter what you've walked in in here before, maybe you've been the cheater and the adulterer. Maybe right now you were like me and you are addicted to pornography and it's something that's ruining your life, it's affecting your relationships, it's affecting yourself. Maybe you're caught in this web of just lusting over what you've had in the past, DMing an ex, dreaming about what life was like when you were a little bit more wild or younger or something like that. I don't know. I don't know what the issue is, but for all of us, there is an issue. And the truth of the gospel here is that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are washed clean we are washed clean, that the labels of this culture, they no longer define us, but the word of God defines us as exactly like my brother Gideon said during our worship time. The Lord's opinion of us becomes more important than the opinion of man. I just want to encourage you, like we've said, we're not here to judge you, but we're here to see you released from the lies of culture. And so I just want to invite you if you're feeling compelled today, we'll have a prayer team in the back. Our pastors will be in the back to give you some privacy, but would you come and would you pray with us? Would you put your trust in the name of Jesus? Would you call on his name and let his spirit come and move in you and change your heart and change your desire and change your affections so that you love Jesus with your whole heart and not just a little part of it?